0: This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, I'm, I'm certain we'll have a few more drop in uh, before we get too much further in, but good morning, to everyone. Thanks for joining us this morning for this, what I think is an incredibly important topic from Scripture. So let me uh, let me pray for us and then we'll get started. No, I'll just leave it. I think we'll have a few more. We'll have a few more come in here. Well, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for. This morning and an opportunity to learn from your word together, this. Not just important topic, but this central topic, it's hard to think of a a more central and important topic in Scripture than this one. And because of how important this is, Lord, I pray that You would teach us this morning, that You would guide us through Your Word. Lord, help us to understand this issue, uh, not just more deeply intellectually Lord but I pray that our lives would be revolutionized our hearts would be altered and changed because of this truth of union with Christ Lord uh, help us as we work through this to understand it clearly and to draw nearer to you because of this Lord fill us with faith fill us with love for you and Lord work in our lives in great ways we pray In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we're going to do three weeks here on this topic of union with Christ, uh, joined with Jesus. And I want to begin this morning by helping us see how central this is to the Scriptures. Theologians uh, often speak about how central union with Christ is in the Scriptures, Let me just read you a few things. Todd Billings, who is an influential theologian in our own day, he says that union with Christ is theological shorthand for the gospel itself. Theological shorthand for the gospel itself. You could hardly raise the importance of something as high as that. The gospel is central. It's of central importance to us. And he says... Union with Christ is one way we can describe the gospel in theological shorthand. Or John Murray, who is a great theologian, uh, or was a great theologian from the 20th century, one of my favorites, he says nothing is more central or more basic than union with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of of salvation, Again, strong words. The central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. If that's the case, then we cannot understand our salvation if we don't understand this issue of union with Christ. Or take John Owen, one of the greatest theologians of the 17th century, one of the greatest Puritan theologians, uh, maybe one of the greatest theologians ever in some senses. He says that union with Christ is the greatest, most honorable, and glorious of all graces that we are made partakers of. Again, such strong language, isn't it? Grace is what we love and want to experience, what Scripture makes so central to our lives. And Owen says that union with Christ is the greatest, most honorable, and glorious of all graces that we experience. Or one theologian, uh, a contemporary commentator on Galatians, he puts it this way He says, being uh, in Christ, this union with Christ, is the essence of Christian proclamation and experience. Without treating the in Christ, Motif, we miss the heart of the Christian message. Again, you could hardly speak more strongly than this. This issue of union with Christ is the essence of Christian proclamation and experience. You miss the heart of the Christian message if you miss this reality. So I hope you feel after reading these things like we could hardly cover a more important, more central topic to the Christian life than this one let me recommend to you uh, this book by Rankin Wilborn. Uh, It's called Union with Christ, The Way to Know and and Enjoy God. We have several copies of this in the bookstore. This is a very readable book on this uh, particular issue. And if you want to dig a little deeper, even after these three weeks that we'll give to this topic, uh, I would recommend this one. But here's what rankin Wilborn says about this. He says, I don't think it's preacherly hyperbole to say that you will never hear something more amazing in your entire life. Union with Christ touches on the highest and most profound truths of the gospel and at the same time reaches down into the depths of the human heart to fill us with more joy and hope more comfort and strength than anything else ever could. Is there any truth we more need to lay hold of today than our union with Christ? Now that's strong language again, but notice what rankin Wilborn says. He's saying this is not just uh, the central doctrine of salvation or the Christian life. He is suggesting something more than that, that it reaches down into the depths of the human heart and fills us with more joy and hope and more comfort and strength than anything else ever could. So what he's suggesting is that this, again, not only a central doctrine, but the central uh, teaching of Scripture that gives us joy and hope and comfort and strength. And so uh, some of these are the reasons why we have chosen to uh, cover this topic in Cornerstone U. We could hardly cover something more central, more helpful, more life-giving, more joy-giving than this issue. So let's turn to the Scriptures then and uh, and talk about some passages that speak of union with Christ. Let me start in Ephesians 1. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 first. And I want to start here because I want you to see how central this issue of union with Christ is for Paul. You don't have to read too long in Paul to see that union with Christ is a bedrock for him in all of his thinking about what happens for a Christian in Jesus Christ. So I want to start in Ephesians 1. Paul in Ephesians 1 gives this great doxology, this great uh, Paragraph of praise about God's work in salvation, in Jesus Christ. And you'll notice as I read this paragraph, verses 3 through 14, how many times Paul says something like, In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And he, he gives praise to God for many aspects of our salvation. And you'll see that when he, when he speaks of each aspect of our salvation, he connects all of it to this being in Christ for the Christian. And by the way, in the Greek text of Ephesians, uh, verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1, uh, are all one sentence. It's as if Paul is so overcome with praise toward God for the salvation that he has worked for us that this sentence keeps running on and on and on. He just keeps piling up these phrases of praise toward God for the salvation that he gives. And what I want you to do as I read these verses is count how many times you hear something like, in Christ, so you can see how much this issue of union with Christ is a bedrock for him. Beginning in verse 3, listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ... It was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So I don't know if you were counting there, uh, but I haven't counted exactly the number. But did you hear it? In him, in the beloved, through Jesus Christ, in him, in him, in him, over and over again. And that's, again, because Paul thinks of every one of these realities of the saving grace of God. Uh, his election, forgiveness of, sti- of sins, adoption as sons, uh, on and on it goes. These things do not come to us at all if they don't come to us through our union with Christ, in Christ, every aspect of it. So that's simply to say, when Paul has an opportunity to, to lay out a doxology of salvation, and all the saving graces of God. He does not do it without repeatedly reminding us of of how this happens, this reality of our union with Jesus Christ. So let's unpack this a little bit in the New Testament uh, with some of the uh, scriptures that Paul has written to us. I want to go now to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Because in Romans chapter 6, I think we see a number of the graces of salvation that come to us through our union with Christ in Romans chapter 6. Now here, Romans chapter 6, Paul is trying to unpack for his readers how it is that our justification in Jesus Christ does not lead to antinomianism, meaning does not lead to a life of living in sin because we're trusting in the grace of justification. We're righteous in Jesus Christ because of his righteousness and not ours. Does that mean that we can just go on living in sin? And that's okay because we're righteous in Jesus Christ. And the answer to that is no. And Paul unpacks that by speaking about our union with Christ. So let's begin in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Since what you've just said is true, Paul, about our justification in Christ and by the grace of Jesus Christ, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So notice the conception that Paul has here. What Paul thinks is that We have been united to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. You hear the union with Christ language in there. Our baptism is a representation of this reality that we have been buried with Christ. We have been united to Christ in his death. And we have also been united to Christ in his resurrection. We're buried with Christ in his death. We're raised with Christ to new life. That's because of our union with Jesus Christ. Now, what does that have to do with our living lives that are not lives of sin because of grace? Well, what it what it is indicating is we're going to see more here in the following verses is that because we are united to Jesus Christ in his death This means that we have been crucified with Christ. Our sinful life, our sinful self has been crucified with Jesus as well in His death. Our sinful life is dead and buried because of our union with Jesus Christ. But because Jesus is raised from the dead and because we are joined to Jesus in His, not only in His death but also in His resurrection, this means we also have new life in Christ This is why Paul goes on to say say later that death does not have, or sin does not have dominion over us anymore as Christians. It's not because we have bucked up and decided to live for Christ. No, it's because our old person, our old man, our old sinful flesh has been crucified and has died and has been buried with Christ by virtue of the fact that we have been united to Him In his death. And we've also been raised with Christ in union with him so that we live a new life in him. So, our life of living in Christ and not a life of sin is because the old man is crucified with Christ and the new man is now alive in Christ. And notice how Paul fleshes this out in the following verses. He says in verse 5 For if we have been united with him, notice that language now. We have, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Paul thinks that our union with Christ in His death leads to us not being enslaved to sin. Anymore. The old man is dead, just like Jesus died once, never to die again. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him for the death he died he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives to God so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus so you see the conception Paul believes that we are united to Jesus Christ that's the bedrock of our salvation it's not only the bedrock but it is what drives every part of Of our salvation and you notice that even in this paragraph or these verses of Romans 6 1 through 11 Paul draws out a few different implications of this one of those we've mentioned already and that is that Christians are not enslaved to sin anymore Christians do not have sin as in dominion over us anymore Christians do not live lives that are driven by sin anymore that doesn't mean Paul thinks Christians are sinless as long as we still live in this life and battle in this world before the final consummation, we still will battle with sin. But it means that sin is not in dominion over us anymore. Being, having sin uh, in dominion over us, that kind of life has been crucified because of our union with Jesus Christ. So that's one implication he draws out. We're not under the dominion of sin. We're under the dominion of grace. And we, lives, we live life, lives of seeking to grow in holiness in Christ because of that. But notice another implication Paul draws out here is our own resurrection, right? Because we are united to Jesus in his death, therefore our sinful lifestyle has been crucified with Jesus. But also because of our union with Christ, we have hope of resurrection. Resurrection. Because just as Jesus has risen from the dead and never dies again, we too, by being joined to Jesus in union with Him, have new life in Him and have hope of of resurrection ourselves. Our hope of resurrection is not based on our good workings or our ability to accomplish anything. It's rooted purely in this reality of our union with Christ. If he's risen from the dead, then so are we. Because we are united to him and we are joined to him. You notice that there in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And I'm always arrested by what Paul says here in verse 10 as well. I think this would be a third implication at least that we could draw from our union with Christ here. He says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Actually, there are two implications in that verse, aren't there? One of them is, I think, that... Once this death and resurrection has happened in Christ for every believer, it will never be altered again. Jesus died and rose from the dead, and he lives forever, uh, never to die again, which means that every Christian who is joined to Jesus, uh, that's true of us as well. This is... Not something that can be reversed. Our life, in, our death to sin and life in Christ will never be reversed any more than the, than the life of Christ can be reversed. He lives forever. We live forever because He lives forever. You see? He died to sin once, never to die again. We died to sin once, never to die again. He lives forever. We live forever. Okay, but I love what uh, something else verse 10 says there. The life he lives, he lives to God. I love this phrase. And there are other places where Paul speaks in a similar way. Jesus did not die and rise from the dead in order to go on his merry way somewhere. He, he died for sin and rose from the dead in order to be alive to God, to live to God. And that's the same Thing for us by virtue of our union with Christ we did not die to sin and get set free from death in order to go on our merry way somewhere we died to sin and rose from the dead in Christ so that we might be alive to God so that we might live to God our lives are in God and for God and toward God so the point of looking here at Romans 6 is to see how this union with Christ weaves its way through every aspect of, of what Paul thinks of as the Christian's salvation. Our putting sin behind us happens because of our union with Christ in His death. Our resurrection from the dead happens by virtue of being united to Jesus in His resurrection. Our 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 confidence that this salvation will never go away. That will never be. uh, We'll never experience death, final death again. Happens because of our union with Christ in His death, death and resurrection. Our life to God. Our being alive to God. Every moment of our existence happens by virtue of our being in union with Jesus Christ. Let me point out a couple of more passages on this idea, and then I want to draw out uh, a few implications of this uh, beyond what we've seen here in Romans 6. If you go back with me to Ephesians, this time to chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, let me remind you what we read just a few moments ago in Ephesians 1 as I was trying to show you how pervasive and central this idea of union with Christ is for Paul. Paul said something at the beginning of that uh, doxology in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice Paul's language there. He doesn't say God will bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's not the way he says it, is it? He says, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul thinks that right now, Christians have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours already. Not in the future, but already. Even while we have our feet firmly planted on the ground in Knoxville, Tennessee, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, how can that be? And the reason for it, in Paul's mind, is because of our union with Christ. We were buried with Christ in his death... We were raised with Christ in his resurrection. And if we are joined to Jesus by faith, then we are joined to Jesus. And Jesus, right now, is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has an inheritance with the Father in the heavenly places, right now, where he lives forever make intercession for our sins and Paul thinks of this union with Christ in such a way that that we are in Christ and if Christ is seated at the right hand of the father then we are seated at the right hand of the father that's difficult to wrap our minds around but that's the way Paul thinks of this which is why he says what he says here in Ephesians chapter two it's a very familiar passage Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, but look at verse 4, and notice this afresh, thinking about it in terms of our union with Christ. Paul says, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So notice the union there. God, by his mercy, made us alive together with Christ. There's our, joined, our being joined to Jesus. By grace you have been saved. Notice verse 6. And raised us up with him. We're still joined to Jesus, aren't we? Raised us up with him. And hear this part. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Notice again, Paul does not say he will seat us. That's not the way he thinks of it. He's, he thinks of it as God already raised us up with Christ and already seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And just in case we didn't get the union, he says it again, in Christ Jesus. So he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him he seated us with him and in the heavenly places in christ jesus so paul wants us to get this point doesn't he together with him with him with him in christ jesus all in the space of a few words and that means that believers who are joined to jesus by faith are seated with christ in the heavenly places as we speak and notice what he says next here verse 7 so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So Paul can say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has already blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because believers who are joined to Jesus are seated with Christ in the heavenly places right now. These riches are ours. Now, if you flip over to Colossians chapter 3. I want to point out two more passages of Scripture real quickly and then draw out a few implications here uh, as we finish. But my goal here is to help us see again how union with Christ is not just one doctrine among many for Paul. It is the warp and woof of our salvation in every aspect. Colossians chapter 3. Notice the idea here is similar to what we just saw in Ephesians. Verse 1, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ. Notice the verb tenses again. Not will be raised, but have been raised. Why? Because we are with Christ. He says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory. So you see the conception here again. Paul thinks that believers are united to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And in the context here, Paul is speaking about how we have put our old man, our old person of sin, away in our Christian lives. The sinful life does not rule us anymore. We've put the old man away. Because we're in Christ in his death. And we're putting on the new self. Because we are in Christ. And then Paul here again. We we have died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places right now. And our lives are hidden with Christ in God. That's the phrase Paul uses there you see in verse 3. So it's the same as what what he was saying in Ephesians. So what Paul's doing here is suggesting that this, this reality of our union with Christ gives us our power for living a life of holiness apart from sin. This idea of our union with Christ gives us our hope for the future, do you see that in verse 4? When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's no going back on this because of our union with Christ. And I, I think there are many other things that we can draw out from this. The fact that we are, our lives are hidden with Christ. You can probably, if you think about that, imagine the hope that this is that this provides for us as Christians, uh, which, which I'll say more of here in just a moment. But let me, let me go to one other passage in the New Testament here on this. And that's John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Another familiar passage here in John 15, but let's think about it in terms of union with Christ once again. As you read the New Testament, you discover that the New Testament writers will often think of Jesus as being the fulfillment of everything that happens in the Old Testament. Okay? So it's not just that the New Testament writers think that Jesus fulfills specific predictive prophecies. For example, in Micah 5, it seems to indicate that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, okay? And Matthew quotes that passage uh, when he's telling his own birth narrative in Matthew's Gospel. Okay, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Well, if you look at Micah 5, it says... You know, it seems to indicate he's going to be born in Bethlehem or he's going to come from Bethlehem, okay? That's a specific predictive prophecy. But that's not the only way that the New Testament writers think that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. They think that the Old Testament gives lots of patterns and promises and institutions and persons and provisions. You name it, Jesus is the new and true for all these things. For example, if you take the temple, in, in the Old Testament, the temple was the representation of God's presence among his people, right? This is, this is the place where God's people would come to meet with God, and they would know that God is present with them. Well, you know, in John chapter 2, when Jesus is in the temple and, and saying and doing things, and the people say, uh, give us a sign, you know, that you have authority to do these things. And he says, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days, And they say it's taken 46 years to build this. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? And, of course, what he means there is to say that I am the temple now. And when I die and rise from the dead, I am going to be rebuilding the temple in three days because I now am the presence of God in the world. And so he goes on to say in John chapter 4, you don't have to go to Jerusalem, to the temple in Jerusalem or the temple on Mount Gerizim to find the presence of God. Right? You can experience and know the presence of God because I now am the temple. Uh, and you, could, you can do this kind of thing over and over again. Jesus is not just the temple, but he's also the new high priest who goes into the Holy of Holies uh, to be a mediator for our sins. Right? And not only is Jesus the temple and the high priest, but Jesus is also the sacrificial lamb. Isn't he? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he's the temple. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. Uh, we could do this over and over from the, from, the, from the Old Testament. He's a new David. He's a new Moses. Uh, so Jesus fulfills all these things. Well, one of the things that, J- that John is doing or that Jesus is doing here in John 15 is saying, not only is Jesus all those things that I just mentioned, but Jesus is actually also a new Israel. Every place that Israel failed in the Old Testament, Jesus as the new Israel succeeds. Probably this is what Matthew is doing in his gospel when he suggests Jesus comes through the waters of baptism, kind of like Israel came through the waters of the Red Sea. He wanders in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, like Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. When Jesus battles temptation in the wilderness, he quotes three times from the book of Deuteronomy. While the people still were in the wilderness, about to enter the promised land, As if to say every place where Israel failed in their temptation, Jesus is faithful in the midst of his temptation. Jesus, like Israel, received the law on Mount Sinai. Jesus goes on a mount and gives the law in the Sermon on the Mount. I think this is Matthew's way of suggesting that Jesus is a new Israel, being faithful in every way that Israel is unfaithful. Well, John 15 is the same way. Because in the Old Testament, Israel is often spoken of as a vine. God takes this vine and he plants it in his vineyard. And he builds hedges and he cares for this vineyard. But lo and behold, this vineyard grows wild grapes. Israel was unfaithful in their sin, so the vineyard gets destroyed. Jesus comes along here in John 15 and what does he say? I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. So good Jewish Bible readers will hear something here, won't they? There's a new vine in town. And this vine is better than the old vine. This vine is faithful where the old vine was unfaithful. This vine grows good fruit where the old vine grew wild grapes. So Jesus is the new Israel. And this what this means for us is that all of the promises for Israel, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. So how do we lay hold of all the good promises of God? We do it by becoming united to Jesus Christ by faith. We lay hold. We are grafted in as Paul says it in Romans 11, right? We are grafted into this tree, this olive branch, or whatever it is, by faith in Jesus Christ so that we receive the sap there. We receive the the life-giving hope that the vine gives only by virtue of being united to this true vine now who grows good fruit. So look at verse four of John 15, Jesus says, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in the vine, or you abide abide in me. I I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So this is one of the ways that Jesus speaks of our union with Christ, isn't it? By faith, we attach ourselves to the true vine. And we abide in the true vine. And that's the only way we can be anything and do anything apart from our union with Christ we can do nothing apart from abiding in the true vine. We can do nothing. So what, I, what I've tried to do so far is to show you from a number of passages from the New Testament how union with Christ is a bedrock, it's pervasive, it's our whole life as Christians. And what I've shown you so far from these few passages is that our union with Christ means that we, by faith, are in Christ. So that anything that is true of Christ... Becomes true for us. If he's died to sin once for all. We have died to sin once for all. If he's risen from the dead once for all. We are risen from the dead once for all. If he's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And has every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so on. We can multiply this over and over. We are in Christ and therefore have everything that Christ has by virtue of being in him. Let me, let me, in closing here, just draw out these implications once again, list off some of these things. And I've already listed several of these. If you are a Christian and you are in Christ, think about the hope that we have. First, you don't have to kill your sin on your own. You are dead to sin in Christ. Because you are united to Him. You don't have to make yourself alive to God. You are already alive to God by virtue of being in Christ. You don't have to conjure up power for holiness in your own strength. You have power to live a life of putting sin to death and growing in Christ because of your being united to Christ. You can trust that you will someday be raised from the dead. There's no turning back on this. You will have resurrection bodies. You will live forever a resurrection life in Christ. And the power of that resurrection is already at work in you, as Paul prays in Ephesians 1. If you go on to read what he says in Ephesians 1. He recognizes that this resurrection power is already at work in us because we are united to Jesus Christ. But we, can, we, we have trust and hope in a future resurrection because of our union with Jesus Christ. We can be confident that we will never be separated from the love of God because we are in Christ Jesus Another implication of our union with Christ is that we have confidence in grace that has already been given to us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His righteousness is ours. That's why there's no condemnation. We are in Him so that His righteousness becomes ours. We have hope of an eternal eternal inheritance because we are in Christ. Because Jesus is the Son of God, He has the inheritance of God as the Son of God, right? Now, if we are in Christ, then we become sons of God in Him, which means the inheritance of ours. Remember how Paul says in Romans 8, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ? We know that we have this inheritance in Him because we are in Him. A couple of more things I want to say about this. What this means is that our confidence in the faith is not based on the quality of our faith or our experience or our feelings. All of these things, our righteousness, our inheritance, our resurrection, our hope, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, these things are ours not because we feel like they are ours or not because on a day-to-day basis our feelings and experiences are on a spiritual high. No, because we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, then these things are ours in full measure All the time in Him, regardless of how we feel. You see? This is one of the reasons why our union with Christ is so life-giving and so hope-giving. I wake up in the morning and I don't feel like it. Oh, I don't feel like it today. But what I realize is that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is mine right now. Regardless of my feelings. Because I'm in Christ. And it's 100%. There's no reducing it because of how I feel. Or how I'm living. Because... Those, my righteousness, my hope, my inheritance are not based on anything in me. They are Christ, and I am in him. That's hope-giving, isn't it? And then finally, let me say this. One One of the practical implications of this reality of our union with Christ is that we do not have to prove ourselves and our identity. You know, one of, our, one of our great struggles as human beings is we seek to prove ourselves to others. We seek to have an identity that others will like and appreciate and desire. We seek the approval of others very often. This is one of the things that makes our lives or that, that brings so much despair to our lives oftentimes is how much approval do we have from others. And this reality of our union with Christ is an incredible means of helping us drive that away because our identity is fully in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have all the approval and acceptance that we need with God. And we don't have to go about seeking the approval of others. This doesn't mean we ought not to strive for peace with others in every way. Uh, Approval from others is good. Insofar as it is approval that appreciates the good things of Christ. But when others don't approve of us. And their temptation is to despair. Or be despondent because of it, we can always know that we are in Christ, in union with him. And therefore, the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That's what he says about his son, right? And we are in Christ. And so, like we said before, every morning when we wake up, before we get out of bed, we have a father who says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And I go into my day, not in order to earn his favor or anyone else's favor, but I go into my day out of the confidence that is given to me by the Father's love for me by virtue of being united to Jesus Christ. Okay, well, uh, next week what I want to do is, this week what we've, we've done is saying you, being united with Christ means we are in Christ What I want to talk about at the beginning of next week is to say being united to Christ means that Christ is in us. We are not just in Christ, but Christ is in us. And there's lots of incredible implications that flow from that. And we'll talk about that next week. All right? Uh, Why don't I pray because of our time? And then if you have any questions you'd like to discuss, I'd be happy to uh, stick around for a few minutes afterwards. Father, thank you for this incredible grace that you've given that you have joined us to Jesus Christ. We don't have to accomplish these things ourselves, but you have accomplished all things in Christ. And we are in him by faith. What a gift. And I pray, Lord, that knowing this would revolutionize us, that it would strengthen us to put sin to death it would strengthen us to to live in the confidence of of the power of your resurrection to live in the confidence of the hope that we have the inheritance we have in you the adoption we have in you the fact that right now we we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that nothing can separate us from your love for us in Christ Jesus lord what hope what love, what gift it is we have. And we thank you for that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of his word and gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash u.